Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, people of pods. Uh, here's the good news. There's two episodes this week of Australian Politics Live because we're back. We're back for 2020 and uh, we had a special event uh, at The Guardian earlier this week in Sydney, a live event where we were speaking about the challenges facing us over the next decade and most importantly, I think at the moment, where we might be able to find hope and solutions required for the times that we live in. Now, it's Catherine Murphy, of course. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia and I am the host of this show. I was on the panel with uh, the Guardian's editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner, our uh, London supremo and all-round wonderful woman, our Australian editor, Lenore Taylor, uh, our Indigenous Affairs Editor, Lorena Allen, and also uh, the, uh, the uh, chap who requires no introduction, I suspect, for politics tragics, David Marr, who uh, writes on many things wonderfully for Guardian Australia. So uh, the conversation is coming up. Have a listen. Please make them welcome. We really sort of framed this event around the fact that we're living in a time when so, so many things that we thought were certain suddenly seem uncertain. What do the technological and data changes that we're living through mean for the whole concept of privacy? Will our democratic institutions remain fit for the task? Can our civic debate still be framed by facts as the starting point for discussions? And pressingly at the moment... Can we protect the future of the planet? And those big things have a profound effect on how we feel about our lives, about how we feel about the institutions that govern us, how we interact with one another, how we get our news, whether we believe the news that we get. And in the face of all of that uncertainty, it's really, really easy to become nihilistic or cynical, to tune out, to think that nothing that we do can make a difference or to sort of unthinkingly join a political tribe, to sort of sign up with some kind of online posse and become a loud, sort of become a follower of some sort of loud commentator or commenting group or Twitter tribe and not actually think about solutions or what you're contributing to make a positive difference to the debate and to sort of see the world in terms of us and them rather than in terms of solutions. I think our job as journalists and certainly what I want to do with Guardian Australia is to report facts and debate solutions and find possible ways through all of these disruptions to try to inform everybody who wants to do their job as a citizen and as a voter 
and as an active participant in a society where they're trying to make things better. So to start that small, uh, easy conversation. Quite easy task. Thanks, Lenore. I'd like to introduce Catherine Viner. Catherine wrote an essay tackling exactly these kinds of issues when it comes to the media in 2017. And so much has happened since to kind of confirm, in my view, the conclusions that she reached in that essay, which really put building hope and finding solutions at the very centre of what The Guardian does globally. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot. It's great to see so many uh, devoted Guardian readers here in Sydney. Um, uh, and just, I mean, this, this essay, I did, uh, I put a lot of thought into it because um, it seemed to me that um, we were facing a, a particular uh, bringing together of a number of crises at many different levels. Uh, first of all, at the global and international level, the crises of most obviously the climate crisis, Added to that, I think the challenges brought by the technological revolution, which is changing all of our lives so rapidly, um, and you have this feeling that the changes, which may be good, may, which may end up being good, but they're all taking place in Silicon Valley without any of us being consulted, um, and yet they're shifting who we are um, seemingly overnight. Um, then we've got changes at national levels, um, and this I would bring into this all the political shocks that so many of us are, have experienced. I like to think that Britain led to, led the way with this, with our wonderful vote for Brexit. It's irony. Uh, after just just to, just so in case anyone was worried, then there was the Trump and right up to uh, Scott Morrison's shock um, election last year. And I think that at the national level, I think there is a challenge to all kinds of democracies. The very fact of democracy itself. There's the shocks, the uh, crises at a local level where I think, you know, decades of neoliberalism have sort of decimated so many communities, so much public space, uh, so much of the local amenities that many people rely on. And then crises at a personal level where you see these horrendous figures for um, loneliness, uh, for depression, for anxiety and so on. And there was a point in 2017 when I was thinking, well, we are at The Guardian, we're very good at describing all these layers of crises. And that's an important, very important part of what we do. But it can't, I thought, be all that we do for our readers. Otherwise, it just feels like a very bleak picture. And so I felt like we had to bring some hope. I was very worried about the word hope. If anybody in the audience knows any journalists, they'll know that they're quite a cynical crowd. And in fact, our job is not generally to search for hope. Our, our job generally is to, you know, suss people out, where, try and find out what they're trying to hide. But in fact, when I looked into hope, you realise that it's not some airy-fairy sort of optimism. Optimism is quite empty. It's empty as pessimism is. It's just kind of a blind decision. But real hope is something much deeper. It's a sort of, it's a belief that the world can be better. It's a belief that our, our actions can still change things. Um, and it's a, it's a faith in the future rather than anything. Uh, it's, and it's a really strong political act. And I found a great quote from Rebecca Solnit where she said that authentic hope requires clarity and imagination. And I just found that a very electrifying idea for a news organisation like The Guardian because we want to bring clarity and that's our absolute commitment to the facts. We all know that facts are being challenged, uh, not least by your government um, but I think facts matter and we have to stick to them. We need to provide our readers with the facts they need uh, to understand the world. But I don't think that's enough. I think we also need to provide imagination, the ideas that people need, not just to understand the world, but to help create a better one. 
Um, and I feel um, that, that that combination, the clarity and imagination coming together in something hopeful is a great position for The Guardian to be in all around the world. And, um, and I, hope, um, I hope it's useful um, to our journalists here in, in Australia. Absolutely. I had originally intended for this conversation to be quite wide ranging for us to talk about a whole whole gamut of hopeful ideas. In fact, we've commissioned a series, Lucy, uh, who was speaking earlier, has commissioned a series of ideas from prominent Australians that would make Australia better in the 2020s. But after the summer we've just had, we've decided to really concentrate on the climate crisis. And it really is a great example of an issue where facts haven't really swayed the debate, where it seems very difficult to find solutions. And so we're going to be concentrating on that in the discussion in a moment. But there is a foundational question underlying any discussion about the next decade in Australia, and that is the unfinished business with our First Nations. And as Lorena has written, that is why the fires have brought a particular grief for Indigenous Australians. Do you want to talk a bit about that? It is a particular grief because we, we look now at it's 250 years they're commemorating this year of Cook's arrival in this country. And if we look at the state of our country, we're in a really bad way. Our rivers are dying. We've got droughts. We've got these catastrophic bushfires. that have, um, And we also have one of the worst rates of species extinction on the planet. That's all happened in 250 years. So after tens of thousands of years of stewardship, for us to watch this is it's paralysing the grief that we feel, particularly when we see our sacred places going up in flames, um, irretrievably damaged by the, these fires, which are stronger and more damaging than anything we have ever seen before. And that's what people have been telling me all up and down the South Coast. In fact, I was on the South Coast on New Year's Eve and I was near that fire that, that Mike showed you the, at Sussex Inlet and we did hear that rumble. I thought there were aircraft flying over, but it was the fire front. Um, it's quite terrifying to experience that. But to also know that in that fire are your totem animals fleeing in terror if they could flee at all. And to, to lose that connection to not just the country but the, the animals that you're supposed to look, care for is a real um, loss of spirit to First Nations people. And I, I think, I mean, as Australians... They're your totems too. I mean, the platypus is on the 20-cent piece. Uh, we're looking at platypuses being um, endangered now. Uh, we have, I think, the um, lyrebird is also potentially endangered. That's on the 5-cent piece, I think. So they're your totems too. So I guess we need to find ways to relate to this country um, because it's the one thing we all have in common. So I was reflecting this week when we did an episode of Full Story on the 30 years of climate inaction and on 30 years that I've spent reporting on international and domestic climate action and inaction. And, inaction. and, I, and I got quite sad uh, about it because really we've done so little. And really when you think about it, a lot of the roads uh, uh, lead back to the climate denialists in Parliament um, and to their determination to stop any coherent federal policy at any cost and to abolish coherent policies that have been put in place by others. So I wanted to uh, throw to Catherine now to start with those impediments to action and how that could change, how that blockage could be removed because, you know, we know back in 2006 the states worked together 
uh, when towards the latter years of the Howard administration. So maybe that's one way. Maybe business investment could find a way around it. Or maybe there are other ways to change the, the seemingly impossible task of getting a coherent national climate policy. What do you think, Catherine? <laughs> there's, there's a challenge. Um, okay. Well, uh, uh, I think several things are happening at the moment that are of interest and uh, regular readers of mine will know I'm pretty impatient <laughs> with, uh, with the pace of change. But I, I do want to lay a couple of positive things in front of you tonight. Uh, I think we have had a very substantial shift in the business community since the business community lined up with the coalition to, uh, uh, to abolish the carbon price. I think the business community has turned around in a very significant way in a very short period of time. And we now have a, a serious constituency in business for net zero by 2050, for example, which would have seemed unthinkable even five years ago. And that influences uh, that influences politicians. Uh, I think also positive we've seen, uh, as Lenore flagged a second ago, we've seen state governments start to step into the breach slowly, cautiously, even uh, state Liberal governments step into the breach. We're seeing it here in New South Wales and elsewhere where uh, if the federal government is incapable of giving them a coherent policy, then they will press ahead in the absence of a federal, well, a coherent federal policy. That's also a positive. Uh, I think today, uh, you know, Parliament has resumed. I'm away from home on the first day of Parliament's resumption, which is quite strange for me. But Anyway, in my absence, the uh, the Parliament, I think someone said earlier, has turned into a circus before 9am. That's true. Um, but also today there was a very interesting debate in the Coalition Party Room where I flagged last week in some things I was writing that there is this, there is this shift starting to happen, a nascent shift that is happening in the Federal Liberal Party federally uh, where people are starting to realise that they have done the wrong thing. <laughs> And they are now starting to try and come to terms with how you unwind a, a terrible wrong you have perpetrated. And that is actually more complicated than it sounds. So uh, this, view, this view is not universally held. Uh, today we saw it in microcosm. We saw after the uh, low-stakes battle of the national leadership, uh, national's leadership um, uh, circus played out. Uh, then they uh, rolled into the coalition party room today. Uh, Barnaby Joyce, Matt Canavan, George Christensen all stood up in favour of, uh, you know, the, the lines we were very familiar with those guys, uh, more, more, more coal, coal is great for humanity. Uh, you know, the, the, the coalition must, absolutely must not shift on, on climate action. The reason we are in government today, one of them said, is because we held Queensland by arguing against climate action and we must not step off this fight. But uh, a number of moderate Liberals, a number of them, six, seven, eight, in this discussion said, no, <laughs> we need to shift. We need to do something else. And I don't want to inject... I mean, this is a session about hope and I am very conscious of how earnest we've all been for the last hour, hour or so in your company and I don't want to promulgate false, false hope this evening in your company. I think we're a long way from actual progress, <laughs> a long way, and I'm not sure that we'll actually get there. But I am, you know, I've been covering this very, very closely for a number of years. 
the sort of discussions that are happening amongst Liberal MPs at the moment are, are, are different. They but it would still require a leader. It would still require a leader in the Liberal Party prepared to take on the denialist faction, prepared to stand up and do that. And we both know what happened the last time a Liberal leader tried yeah. to do yeah. that. And that seemed, I mean, I don't want to inject lack of hope into the discussion, but that would seem to be... No, no, well, like that, a, is, that is the it's major... Called de- it's called despair, Lenore. Um, <laughs> In the Guardian style book, it's, it's, it's there. No. Capital, or no, lowercase d. I mean, in one peculiar way or another, I've been writing about Australian politics for, for a long time and I've always taken the precaution of not living and working in Canberra because I think you get a much clearer view um, from the distance of Sydney. Um, and <laughs> and uh, what has struck me in that time is the odd nature of Australian politics, which is this is actually a mildly progressive country, but it can't be governed by a a plainly progressive party. You can't govern this country, the same is true for the United Kingdom and the same is true for the United States, but it is particularly true here. You can't govern this country without the support of a chunk of highly conservative people and governments, national governments, have to straddle this the entire time. And, and at the moment, those conservative people have never had such astonishing amounts of funds in order to protect the threesome that makes societies decent, which is Christ, coal and the crown. <laughs> and, and the objective of that strong majority of Australians, strong majority of Australians who want real action on climate change, there is even a 50-50 split within Liberal National Country Party voters on the issue of getting net zero by 2030. Even amongst national Liberal Party votes, that's an even split. But against that is not science, but money. And this is the greatest struggle with money this country has ever seen in its, in its existence. Glencore, which is the biggest miner of coal in Australia and one of the biggest miners in the world, had an income, had a revenue last year, world revenue last year, of $220 billion. Now, they don't want to lose that money, but the net effect of a successful transition to renewable fuels will mean that they earn very little money at all. So it is an extremely good investment for them and for companies like them to back, fund in the most subtle and the most generous ways those, those elements in our politics which will continue to do anything, including threaten to tear the house down, for Australia to take more effective, more dynamic action on climate change. This is a struggle with money in a country that can't rein in poker machines. Poker machines is barely the tiniest little bit of pocket money.
compared to the resources that we are up against in order to help this country and save the planet. It's also a struggle, though, isn't it, with public opinion on an issue where many people's opinions are not to be swayed by facts or by science. And I know we had a piece by Michael Mann recently where he was saying perhaps this summer would be the tipping point for public opinion in Australia and even globally because it really has been uh, quite quite uh, seen, quite visible around the world. And yet our essential poll in Guardian Australia showed that while there had been quite a shift in public opinion, um, the, the sort of the, the support for the coalition's climate policies was holding quite strong in their base. So I'm just interested if anyone's got any views on what it would take to shift public opinion on this issue. Uh, I think it's uh, this sort of gets to the rub of the uh, or the, the nub of the issue, I should say. Uh, you know, there's there's quite a strong constituency in Australia for climate action uh, as a theory. <laughs> uh, you know, sixty percent, seventy percent higher in some polls, but uh, people are not voting that way when push comes to shove. Or it's not the top issue it's on not which they issue. voted. Yeah, you know, they prioritise the economy or whether or not they're going to lose a tax, tax break or, you know, other other issues that, are, that, that take over. So uh, we, we, have a, we have a cohort that is concerned that is not prioritising climate as their first issue. Um, but Lenore's point was about communication and I think there is some quite interesting research going on at the moment. There's uh, a, number of, a number of social researchers who have been out in the field assessing community attitudes over the summer uh, and uh, because the environment movement is recalibrating after the election. How do we, you know, if we can't win, it, if we can't win a debate on the facts, why not and how do we, how do we recalibrate? Uh, and, and it sort of indicates that, the, that we're split in Australia. We're split into different constituencies but the sort of the, the core constituency that needs to shift is is a sort of is a group in the middle that are that are persuadable on this issue it's people are not we're not talking about people who just will de, will deny the reality of science and there are some people who will deny the reality of science senator moylan well <laughs> well there's well <laughs> I'm not swayed by evidence. No, no, no. Oh, oh yes, oh, Molan. Yes, yes, Jim, Jim. Yeah, I was thinking, Jim, yes, yeah, Jim Molan. Sorry. Yeah. Well, yes, exactly. Not a Guardian evidence, reader. Evidence. As far as I know. Yes. But anyway, the the persuadables, um, people who are worried, people who are worried about it, but are, um, and this is something I think that we all have to face up to. This, this, there are a group of people who are worried about climate change, but who are utterly repelled by the the public conversation about it that information that we sitting up here would regard as facts, would regard as science, would regard as evidence, this particular cohort that I'm talking about regard as catastrophizing. And, uh, and you know, it's psychologically it's a lot to process. <laughs> the end of the world, it's a lot to process. <laughs> um, if someone puts it in front of you, you may lock down, you may, you may shut off, you may not be receptive to that messaging. And but this these are this is a group I stress that that are that are aware that this is this is true that this is true. So I think well, people who work in this field, journalists like me, have to be able to read the room. But we're not going to 
step away from the facts or step away from calling it a climate emergency. I think the answer is to tell stories in ways that can reach people, tell it as a human story, tell it as a lived experience story, rather than in any way um, downplay or minimise what's going on. I don't know, Kath, climate scepticism doesn't seem to have the same hold in the UK. The debate is quite different there, isn't it? And I think, I don't know how you found it when you arrived in 2013, it must have been quite a shock. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, it is, it is a fact that uh, all the major, all the political parties in Britain of any significance all um, um, accept the science. They all accept that the climate crisis is real. Um, it doesn't mean they do anything about it, by the way, but th- there is not really a debate about the facts of it, except in sort of far right fringes of the spectator and occasionally the uh, telegraph, which is different from yeah. the Australian telegraph. Um, was that agreement? Um, um, <laughs> But um, but I think um, uh, well, yeah when I when I arrived um, I remember talking to you about it I was very shocked because on the first Saturday I got here um, it's the first time I'd seen the Australian in print and um, I was just I just couldn't believe the quantity of generally white male old uh, columnists um, write, um, writing columns full of climate denial one after the other I mean as I say in some and you know you might find a place that's on the fringes in the UK but it just was right at the heart of this huge central newspaper and I think um, lots of what um, Catherine was just talking about would apply in any country in the world but there is a specific structural problem in Australia where um, 70% of the printed uh, presses is owned by Rupert Murdoch so yeah exactly um, this discussion is about solutions but the big diversion, I guess, a diversionary debate and also a debate with some truth and some substance to it has been about hazard reduction burning, um, which which we do have to consider, but it's uh, obviously not the substitute for climate action as has been presented. It has, though, Lorena, suddenly won Indigenous land management practices some unlikely champions over the summer. Suddenly, it's, it's, um, suddenly people are interested in the way Indigenous people do cultural burning. Um, and would like to be able to do that in the southern half of the country. In the north, it's it's very successful. Um, Indigenous protected areas in the in Australia is about forty percent of the the national federal estate is Indigenous owned and run now. Um, in order to get people back on country in the top ends, they um, and do the kind of cultural burning to look after to walk the country and look after it the way they wanted to. They had to use the carbon to create an industry around carbon. It's been quite successful up there. They they do early dry season burns in really in mosaic patterns so that um, wildlife have a chance to escape. They 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 approach it from the perspective that animals have a fire culture like we do. So say a, a wombat will dig a hole to avoid a fire, koalas will climb a tree, kangaroos will run to outrun a fire. And to understand the way that animals relate to fire is an important factor in the burning that they do. But in order to get that, to get back on country and to do the burning they wanted to do, they had they developed this economy around it. So they say they sequester carbon and it's been really successful. That money goes back into the ranger programs so they can do all of that caring for country. It's not just about fire. It's about um, introduced species and cleaning up beaches. I mean, some of these really remote parts of Arnhem Land are just full of plastic. And would it work as well in the south? It, it's possible. Um, I think I think there are practitioners down here who want to be able to do this work, who've done it in little ways. Um, on the south coast around Tathra, there was a cultural burn done 
about a year ago, that area was reasonably untouched in these last cat catastrophic blazes. So I think they're saying, and they've certainly said to me, what have we got to lose? I mean, look at what we have already lost. Can we just give this a go? And it is something that's scalable and certainly the Waterkin Rangers in the top end are willing to, to work with the mob down here to, to develop these strategies for us. So I just wanted to remind everyone to uh, write down any questions. I'm sure there's lots of them and hand them along because we're going to be taking some questions soon. But before we do, I just want to have a quick discussion about the role that the media can play in this debate, how we can cut through. And going back a bit to what Murph was talking about earlier, Kath, there's lots of issues like this where people have very deeply held views and we have to work hard to understand people that we disagree with, to, to have a conversation with people that we disagree with. And I, I really don't want to get into the entrails of Brexit, but <laughs> I really don't. But I, I, I'm assuming that we, we face that kind of yeah. problem reporting on Brexit also. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it's uh, the, the Financial Times did analysis of different demographics in Britain, age, uh, gender, class, race, and which newspapers people read. And uh, the number one uh, most anti-Brexit demographic in Britain was the Guardian Reader. <laughs> Uh, you know, more than any young people. And so, so um, um, and I think, you know, we were obviously very um, uh, unashamedly um, anti-Brexit and pro-Europe. However, I felt very strongly that um, we really didn't want to have that, uh, it's called a Ramona, uh, rather than a Remainer, a Ramona view of, you know, where you just sort of say, um, God, they must be stupid. God, they must be thick. God, they must be racist. You know, because I think um, there are definitely some, of those types of people who did vote for Brexit as for voting for anything. But it's really important to understand the reasons why people vote for anything and to understand what drives it. Now, there were definitely some elements um, that would have always been and, you know, saw Europe as some socialist plot um, and would have always, always wanted to be out of Europe. But there was also a large group of people who voted for Brexit because they felt that they're... At, some of those crises that I spoke about at the beginning, you know, their, their communities have been underinvested in, that, um, that the NHS was falling apart, they weren't getting the healthcare that they'd grown up with, um, and that they just, and it was a kind of howl of pain about what had happened to their lives. And so I thought it was really, really important just to try and understand why people voted for Brexit, not just say that we thought Brexit was a bad idea. But of course they want the empire back, which is sweet of them. Um, <laughs> but they didn't ask us. Yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, a bit of a problem. Mind you, we are looking forward to the continuing ructions in Britain of Brexit because we have the crown as our head of state because our constitution says our head of state is the head of state of the Union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, if it all breaks up, we can get ourselves a president without any effort whatever. <laughs> Now, there's a positive idea for the next decade. We're starting to run out of time, unfortunately. We were, go we're, we're going to finish with everyone on the panel talking about uh, one good idea to make the 2020s better. And I think we'll go through the panel now and do that. I'm going to save mine up for the very last. Uh, but an in-between everybody else's good idea and my idea, we're going to go to the questions. So will we start with... Lorena Allen's one good idea to make Australia better in the 2020s. Yeah, okay, one good idea. I, I was struck the other day, I was looking at a beautiful photograph of a bunch of soldiers, I think bottle-feeding kangaroos down at Kangaroo Island. It was just the most gorgeous. And the expression on their faces 
was a pure delight and I thought it mustn't be often in a soldier's life that you can feel that happy on the job. And I started to think about what we could all do to help our country and maybe maybe we could all be shanghaied into a national service of some kind to go out and heal the bush. Nice idea. <laughs> I'm going to go right down to David. This country has some things it has to do and that is to take a number of a number of steps to contain the power of money in our politics and the first of those steps is a little one which is um, real-time reporting of election donations. We should not be finding out this week who paid for our elections last May. That is, in world terms, it is just a joke. But the other thing, of course, is is a national ICAT with appropriate powers. Okay, um, do we have a couple of... Well, he's a hard act to follow, but um, I, will, I'll, uh, I will express my views not as a journalist uh, but as a citizen. Uh, talk to people who you don't agree with. Continue to believe in your fellow humans. Continue to reach out and make connections with people. Uh, I think the message of or... The, the sort of the message of the summer as well as catastrophe and devastation is the the glory of humanity <laughs> frankly and uh, and reaching out to other people I say this uh, because uh, because I'm a softie um, but also because everything about contemporary existence is pushing us into enclaves pushing us into tribes pushing us into conflict. The conflict is being monetized everywhere we look. And uh, the great act of humanity at this point in our history is to push against that forcefully. Okay, so inspired by uh, Greta Thunberg and the school strikers, I think we need to start listening to what the kids are telling us to do. Uh, They've got the answers. We should do exactly as they say. Okay, so I have um, about 400 questions and 30 seconds to ask them in. (laughs) I'm going to start with this one. As journalists, how do you prepare for interviewing politicians who are determined not to engage and answer questions? Do you want to start, David? No, no. Murph Cam. Well, uh, I say uh, without uh, without, um, any hint of peak whatsoever, uh, the uh, Prime Minister has declined to be interviewed by me uh, since he took the top job, I did interview him when he was treasurer. He has declined every request I have made to interview him on behalf of our readers, which is a pity for him because I think it would be good for him to speak to our readers and he can't avoid me anyway because I just keep showing up. <laughs> so there it is. Uh, how do I prepare? Um, well, I suppose, like, my real passion project over the last couple of years has been my podcast, uh, Australian Politics Live, and uh, and uh, that that's relevant in the sense that I wanted to create some space in Australian politics for a long conversation with a politician. So mostly on APL, I talk to a politician for about half an hour. And at the best of those interviews, you can break through the talking points. One, because they're not 
you know, sort of the media cycle kind of compresses everything now. And we're all the master of the five-minute interview or the eight-minute current affairs interview. Everyone's pushing for the news lines. I mean, that's our job. But, uh, but what I want to do with that project is to create some, some safe space for conversation. Uh, and some people who come in my door resist that from the get-go and we just do talking points, which is quite dull and I get quite frustrated. Uh, but I have had some really profound conversations on that podcast uh, uh, with uh, Craig Laundie last year in the middle of the, um, you know, the, the move by the Libs against Malcolm Turnbull. It's one of the most profound conversations I've ever, ha- ever had with another human. Uh, and, you know, the listeners were brought in on that. So um, I prepare obviously by, you know, for a garden variety interview, I prepare by knowing my brief. I prepare by working and doing my homework and understanding what the facts are and trying to keep the conversation factual in terms of what I do professionally to try and create space for something other than shit in the public domain is to create that space by inviting somebody to come and talk to me for half an hour. They're not stressed. They're not thinking, oh, my God, I've got 10 minutes. What if I screw up? I won't have any time to reverse out of some mess I've made. Uh, and we and I don't interview like a broadcast interviewer because I'm not. I'm a print journal who is now uh, has migrated to digital. So I interview in a different way. So I guess in my practice, I'm looking. F- that's what I'm looking for. I mean, that might seem a bit of a woolly answer to the question, and I hope whomever asked the question doesn't feel like I'm avoiding it. It's partly it is about creating safe space for conversations to occur, and by safe space, I don't mean come on my podcast and you won't be challenged because everybody who walks in the door is pretty challenged. But, uh, but creating um, uh, enough breathing room to try and hit a truth every now and again. Great. And, uh, and also, you know, not doing that in private, not doing that without you guys hearing it, like putting it in front of you because I think it's also very important for us to show our methods, show us how we get to information, show us how we interview, how we have those conversations because that builds trust in uh, my profession, which is obviously extremely important to me. And now here's one I think is directed to Catherine Viner. How much of a financial hit did The Guardian take in making the brave and admirable decision to ban advertising from fossil fuel companies? Yes. Yes. Yes, so if anyone uh, missed it, we announced last week that we were the first major global news organisation to say we're not taking adverts from fossil fuel companies. Um, we haven't actually uh, publicised the amount. It's it's not uh, inconsiderable. It's pretty big. Um, but um, we are confident that um, the our that our readers um, will uh, will uh, make up the gap um, because. Well, because I think they understand what we're, what we're doing and why we're doing it. You know, we are, I mean, there's a lot more richer news organisations in the world that haven't done this. And I think people can see that we're, you know, literally putting our money where our mouth is. So, um, you know, thanks for your support. <laughs> <laughs> now, this, um, this one might require more time than we have. How does The Guardian deal with the Murdoch media's manipulation of news facts? The questioner has not done facts, but 
maybe. I, mean, I, I certainly can't answer that question comprehensively in the time that we've got left, but I can say that we do have to make a judgment. I have to make a judgment as editor most days about what stories we're going to pursue. And there's always a choice between pursuing the stories that we think are important, the, thing, the people we think should be heard from, and pursuing whatever culture war type story the News Limited Press is trying to prosecute on that given day. And making that judgment uh, is, is often walking a fine line. And usually it comes down to if this discussion is really taking hold in the debate, if, for instance, people are being persuaded that arsonists are causing the climate emergency, for instance, then yes, we have to write fact checks, we have to write explainers, we have to interview scientists, we have to try to inject some facts into that debate. But if this discussion over here is actually not really going anywhere, it's just sort of filtering around its own, its own bubble and not really permeating outside of that, then I would certainly prefer to pursue the stories that we think are important and talk to the people that we think should be heard from rather than just getting into some sort of pointless an endless tit-for-tat culture war that ultimately goes nowhere. I hope that helped answer the question. <laughs> okay, this, this is a very big one. Is democracy broken? We're, <laughs> we're, not, we're not short of good ideas, uh, but we are blocked by political inaction. Can we change the system? The answer's got to be yes. The answer's got to be yes because of the... Because if we're active in a democracy, then that's open to all of us, but maybe others. David, do you... be worth fighting for. Yeah, yeah. We're part of the democratic process and um, we keep on doing that. Democracy is not broken. Um, there are difficulties at the moment. There are always difficulties, but democracy is um, a bit of a challenge. There are interesting levels of public opinion, even amongst young people, about whether democracy is the best form of government. I just don't think we've had a good think about it yet. Um, <laughs> but we keep going, and that's the way, and that's the way um, democracy keeps going. I mean, we're just one part of it, but we keep going. But we do have to fight for democratic institutions and for the sorts of norms that have always governed democracy. For instance, it is actually important that there is some sort of process to grant giving. It is important that the Auditor General is listened to, just to name a couple of recent examples. And, I mean, we do do that in our reporting. I think it's something worth fighting for. I think also, just quickly, um, uh, while democracy isn't broken, democracy is very challenged. And uh, uh, as a political reporter, my, my foundational question is can can we have free and fair elections in this country? That's a really important question to keep asking yourself because if the answer to that is no, then uh, then we are in deep shit. So uh, That's a technical term. Um, <laughs> a technical term, quite. Um, sorry, yeah. apologies uh, for, for people of delicate sensibilities, apologies. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so there, there are the challenges looking forward from where I sit uh, uh, not the ones we talk about so much, but the the, the challenges that the, the technology is basically putting before us, which is fake news, you know, video now that can credibly 
you oh, know, yes. you know, video that is that is fake. The last that, thing that we can... absolutely believe. Yes, that, exactly. That, that, the, the moving footage, image. That the moving yeah, image moving was true. Well, and, and, and the end not. of any any um, uh, any accountability for political advertising. Yes, exactly. So there, I mean, there are serious challenges, but um, or, but we all need to be attentive. We all need to understand those of us who are you know who are liberal by inclination and and um, are very committed to democratic norms and freedoms, we all have to understand that we're in a pretty significant fight right now and we all have to keep showing up. And a lot of this appears on the platforms. I think there needs to be some forced accountability or breaking up or whatever of the platforms because um, a lot of the responsibility lies with them. They take no responsibility whatsoever. And we have time for time one Time for one question. more. I did want to ask the question about why isn't the vanilla slice regarded as more of a cultural icon, but I'm going to ask this one. <laughs> Name it, was oh. that you? <laughs> I'm going to ask this one instead. It's for Catherine Viner. How is Australia seen from the outside, particularly with what's happening uh, in the action on climate change? Um, you know, I, I feel... Um, you know, very emotional about Australia. Um, I lived here for a couple of years and I've been back every year since and have been so excited and proud to see what's happened with Guardian Australia. Um, and so, you know, when I hear people talking about, talking about it, I feel a sort of, you know, I feel it's, it's a little bit mine in some way. And so when, um, during the, the bushfires, and you could see it was, it was like the first time people had really considered the idea of climate change really affecting um, a developed country in such a frightening way. Um, and I was very struck. I think, I think the politics of it really travelled far and wide. I've got a friend who um, is not at all political. I've never heard her talk about British politics. And when I told her I was coming to Oz this week and she said, uh, oh, that prime minister. And I was astonished. <laughs> And she said, oh, Scott Morrison. I mean, I was amazed. She knew his name. And she was like, and, but it was, it was like he's become this kind of bogeyman or a kind of symbol for how, how politicians can just not see what's happening in front of their eyes and can deny something that is so profound. I think people are so upset about uh, what's happening in the towns and the cities, what's happening in the countryside with the burning, what's happening in the cities with people choking, what's happening to the wildlife people, are, people who are completely not interested in politics are so upset about the wildlife. And it seems to be this great symbol um, of what could become come to everywhere. And what's upsetting to me is that it seems to be coming to Australia so first, not Australia seems so vulnerable um, to the climate crisis. Um, yeah. That answers your question. I think it does. So I, I said earlier that I was going to keep my one big idea for the 2020s till the end, and um, that's because my big idea is actually my day job. As editor of Guardian Australia, I want to make sure that we are right there in the middle of constructive, factual discussion right through the 2020s. I want to make sure that we keep getting bigger so that we keep having a bigger influence on the Australian debate. And the reason that we can do that is because of readers and supporters like you. Thank you so much for coming tonight.
Thank you so very much for listening. Thank you also to the Guardian supporters that came out in Sydney this week in order to hear hear that conversation and uh, the folks who hung around afterwards to have such good conversations uh, with myself and my colleagues. We really do appreciate it. And thank you guys too who weren't able to come but who have uh, listened to and enjoyed the conversation. Get in touch with me if it's provoked any specific ideas that you want to share. Thank you as always to Miles Martignoni, the executive producer of this show, who's uh, worked very hard to turn around two episodes in this week, as well as his schedule with uh, Guardian Australia's other podcast, Full Story. I hope you've subscribed to that. Uh, Parliament is back in Canberra, back in session again next week, and we will return then. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.